All right. Let's take our Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. As we come to this text, there's a question that I want us to consider. The question is, to be seen or not to be seen? That's the question. And to help you understand the question and why it's important, we need to put two verses from the Sermon on the Mount side by side. So if you have your Bibles open, you could look back to chapter 5, a passage we've already worked through together. And Jesus says this to his people, Matthew 5, 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a, a light under a lamp and put it under a basket, but, but they, on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. If you've been with us, you've heard me say this over and over. The, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is calling us and showing us what it looks like to live as the people of the kingdom of God. He's helping us know what it looks like to be God's people. And near the very beginning of the sermon, he says, you are light. It's biblical imagery, right? The world is darkness. You are light. So, so shine as this light into the world. Live his way as shining lights. So this is the call of Christ for us. Let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And if we stop there, we should have no problem answering the question, to be seen or not to be seen? To be seen, right? Seems straightforward until, until we get to chapter 6, verse 1. We read this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. You understand the question now? To be seen or not to be seen? And we have to ask, are these verses at odds with one another? It's important for me personally because as we've worked through chapter 5, I have told you over and over, this is the way of God. This is what it looks like to be God's kind of people. Let your light shine. Be seen. But now we have this new warning. Watch out. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them. And it seems that maybe these verses need to be reconciled. To be seen or not to be seen, that is the question. Or is it? If we put these two verses side by side at a glance, it seems that they may be contradicting one another, but maybe I asked the wrong question. Maybe this is the, the right question. What do you want people to see? Or rather, who do you want people to see? Whose praise are you living for? Are you living God's way so people will see you and praise you? Or are you living God's way so people will see you and praise God? What we've seen over and over and we will continue to see throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that 
the desire of Christ is for our hearts. Our motivation matters. Who are we aiming to please? Are we striving to live as the people of God? What's driving us? Who do we want people to see? And the reality is, man, we, we claim to know God, and I think we would all profess, if we added it to the screen, you would profess with confidence, I want the glory of God above all else. But can we all admit the temptation? The temptation to think more of ourselves than we do of God? To care more about what people think about us than we care about what people think about God? Even as I write a clever introduction and ask a clever question, like to be seen or not to be seen, what am I trying to do, right? Am I trying to help you see the word of God and to love God and to serve God? Or am I saying, look how clever I am? Not very, but right? Do you get the point? It's this constant work in our hearts. Who do we aim to please? What are we trying to do? Who do we want people to see? We can all be guilty of taking good things that God has called us to do and making them about ourselves. And that's why the warning of verse 1 here in chapter 6. Look at it again. Beware. Watch out. It's a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Jesus knows our temptations. He had been watching the religious leaders of his day. He saw their religion. He saw the way they carried themselves, and he knew their hearts. He knew that they were living for their own praise and not for the praise of God. And what we have over the next 18 verses is Jesus giving us three illustrations of ways that we as God's people may be tempted to live not for his praise, but for the praise of others. In each of these examples, God's talking about things that he has called us to do, but pointing out that we may be tempted to use the good things that he has called us to selfishly. So three illustrations, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. He warns us, we could use our giving selfishly for our own praise. We could use our praying are praying selfishly for our own praise. We could use our, our fasting selfishly for our own praise. And so he's showing us the pitfalls that we could stumble into and warning us to check our hearts. Chapter 5 was all about pursuing righteousness. Now we're told, watch out, be careful. Beware. So, Matthew 6, let's read the first four verses. Hear the word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what you are doing, your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
May he use his word to change us today. I think we all recognize this. We all know this. That it's possible to do really, really good things and to be known as a person who does really, really good things and yet have hearts that are far from God. For all our quote-unquote good deeds, we may not be pleasing to God at all. And that's what this passage is about. A warning from Jesus that, that everyone who knows you and everyone who sees you, they may see you doing all the right things. And you may get lots of pats on the back. But you might miss what really matters. The praise of God. So this is a good warning for us, isn't it? As I thought about this warning, it's, it's a reminder of how subtle sin can be. Because we can take good things, commanded things, God-pleasing things, and use them in wicked ways. As we go through the next 18 verses, there's one point, and this should sound familiar. It's a similar structure to chapter 5. Remember chapter 5, verse 20? Jesus gave a main point. Your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he has six illustrations. Now we have a new main point. You could use your righteousness in a way that's not pleasing to God. And we have three illustrations. And we're just going to work through the first one this morning. It's an example of giving to the poor. Helping us recognize that outwardly good things could be used from a wrong heart. So, how do we think about what we do for other people? I don't think I need to convince you that God wants us to care for the poor. That God wants us to be people who are caring and generous and who are willing to give freely of what we have in order to help others. This is an expectation of the people of God. It's something that goes all the way back to the law. This is something that God commanded of his people. I'll just give you one of many, many examples we could go to. Just my favorite of the ones I read this week. Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse 7. It says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse 10. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and to the needy, to the poor in your land. I think it's interesting, this acknowledgement here, that there will always be those in need. He says there in verse 11, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Jesus says in the Gospels, the poor will always be with you. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because we live in a fallen world. We live in a place where there will always be people with health conditions that prevent them from working. There will be families who lose their primary provider. 
there will be years, I think in biblical times, but for us too, there will be years when crops fail and a farmer loses everything. And the one who has many acres has nothing. Years when a herd of animal dies to disease and a rancher is left without. We live in a world with widows and orphans. And a list is long of reasons why there are those and will always be those among us in legitimate need. And God has always called his people to be the ones who will step in and to meet the needs of those who are in need. Now, just here's a side note. Another sermon for another day. We can't help everyone. So how do we allocate resources? The acknowledgement that the Bible has a lot to say about those who should work but don't. The Bible has a lot to say about the results of laziness and how we should think about and handle the lazy person. The Bible has plenty to say about how to be wise and steward what God has given us. So lots of places, lots of rabbits we could chase. Let's just focus on this one big idea. There will always be the poor, and God has called his people to help the poor. He expects us to care for one another. If you do want to spend some time this week thinking more about giving and what God expects of us, uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 would be a good place to go and, and to spend some time. In those chapters, Paul talks about giving and how we use our money, and he says that the people of God should be generous and, and sacrificial and cheerful in our giving. So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 would be a great place to, to think more about this idea of giving and the heart behind it. But we don't even have to go outside of our passage to see that this is something God expects of his people. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, he doesn't say if, by chance, no, it's an expectation that is built into the passage, when you give to the needy. So there's the assumption that, that this is what we're going to do, that the people of God will be active in meeting the needs of the poor. So let's just mark that down expected, we should be helping the poor among us. That's not necessarily the main point. That's just assumed. Where Jesus is taking us is not whether or not we should give. We should. But that there's a right way to give and there's a, a, a wrong way to give. And we can divide our passage pretty clean, cleanly into these two sections. The, the wrong way to give to the needy and the, the right way to give to the needy. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, if you've ever been with us on a Wednesday night, we, we've had these times where we've talked about how to read the Bible, the best way to understand the Bible. And one of my favorite things to help, help us re recognize is that as we read the scriptures, a lot of times there's repeated words, there's repeated phrases. And if we can recognize those repeated words and phrases, then we're going to be helped in our understanding of the passage. And, and we have a lot of that here in this, not only in our text, but 1 to 18, this whole section. I'll just point them out for you. So as you read this week, you can 
start trying to make some connections. First is the reference to God as Father. Remember, this is something that was new. The people of God hadn't previously referred to God as Father, but Jesus comes and starts using this language more than in the past and, and, and telling his disciples to call God Father. Three times he says, our Father in heaven. We see it in this text. We see it next week in the Lord's Prayer um, and later on again. So you can notice that the use of the word Father. Second is the word reward. We see it in verses 1, 2, and 4, verses 5 and 6, verses 16 and 18. What is that? Three, five, seven times in 18 verses, this word reward. So something we should pay attention to. And there's one more. I wonder if you've identified it yet. It's the word hypocrite. We see it in all three sections. Jesus says there are some who are hypocritical in their giving to the poor. There are some who are hypocritical in their praying. And there are some who are hypocritical in their fasting. And in every case, he's making the point, don't be like the hypocrites. It's a word that you know. We're all familiar with the word. I wonder if you know where it comes from. It's, it's a word that comes from a Greek word that was used for an actor. So in, in, in Greece, and I don't know why they didn't have enough actors, but what I read is that one person would often play multiple parts, okay? And so they wore masks. So wearing one mask to be one character and then another mask to be another character. And the word is the word that we get the word hypocrite. Someone who's pretending to be one thing, but that's not really who they are. And this is the label that Jesus gives to a lot of religious people. He says, outwardly, they're religious. Outwardly, they're doing the right things, but they're hypocrites. Their hearts aren't right before God. And if we read through the Gospels, Matthew in particular, this is a word that comes up a lot. Jesus is regularly pointing out that the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, were hypocrites. Matthew chapter 23, we have this whole long set of woes. Woe to the hypocrites. Woe to the hypocrites. One example, 23, 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. But what is a tomb but something that is full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness? So you are also outwardly appear righteous to others, but you, within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Outwardly, they're one thing, but their hearts are wicked. And we see that, for example, in the way they give to the poor. This scenario that Jesus gives us in verse 2, there's debate among people who debate such things about whether or not this actually happened or whether it's just metaphorical. This idea that there's someone who's, who's going into the synagogue, they're, they're going to the donation box, but maybe before them, they've got their buddy who's, who's playing a riff on the trumpet, right? This fanfare, this kind of march, this announcement, right? He's here. Offering time. I wondered, and I don't know, I wonder if this is where we get the phrase tooting your own horn. Like maybe there's a guy who doesn't have a buddy, so he has to play his own trumpet. I don't know. You can look that up. 
we don't know if this actually happened, but, but what we know for sure is Jesus is saying there were people who were ostentatious in their, in their giving. They were loud in their giving. There was announcements. There was a chance for everyone to clap and to praise. And so we get the command. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Don't be like them. Let's come from the other angle. Couldn't we make the argument? We should celebrate generosity. We should celebrate good gifts. Jesus is warning us. And what he's telling us here is that this wasn't about celebrating good gifts. It wasn't about encouraging generosity. He says, no, they did it so that they could be praised by others. It's the heart, isn't it? They wanted others to say, man, that guy's so generous, so giving, so selfless, when in fact they were full of self. They were hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, doing it all to be seen and praised. And, and we may hear that and think, gross, right? Gross. Why, why would they do that? It's gross. But friends, every one of us is tempted to crave the approval and the appraise of others. We all are. You may not be a trumpeter, but you have your ways. And you may not care if everybody knows, but there's that one person you want to know, Right? I want that one person to think well of me. I don't care what everyone else, but, but them. It's a temptation that's so deep that we may go to great lengths. We may go out of our way and out of our budget to lavish good things on other people. And we may not be loud in tooting our own horns, but we may want to be certain that it doesn't go completely unnoticed. The desire to be praised by others is a, Temptation common to man. And yet here's the warning from Christ. He wants us to know there's something to be lost. He says about those who, who live this way, who give this way, he says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. This is one of those recurring words, reward. We saw it back in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So what's the reward? Well, I think the answer, at least in part, is that the reward is the praise, the approval. So those who gave for the sake of being seen, Jesus says they got the praise and they got the reward. But there's a trade-off. If you get their praise and you get their approval, you forfeit another reward. You forfeit the praise and approval of our Father who's in heaven. And Jesus wants us to hear this. Hear this. It's not worth it. It's not a good trade. I want us to think about this phrase because it is repeated throughout the sermon. Our Father in heaven. Now, if you were with us when we walked through the, the Lord's Prayer on Wednesday nights, we spent a whole week unpacking this phrase, our Father in heaven. We talked about the fact that he's a father. That means that we have a relationship with him as father to child. 
and, and yet it's not just that he's our father, but he's our father who's in heaven, which means he's over all things. He can do all things. That's a really good relationship to have a father who, who can do everything and who's over everything. What an incredible gift. And that's the kind of person you want to get the reward from. That's who you want to be thought well of by. But we make this awful trade. And we sacrifice the reward of our Father in heaven for the praise of people who are fickle. It's not a good trade. What can man give us? What can their praise do for us compared to the God of heaven? But even still, we are tempted to do good, not to please God, but to please people. Just bring together what we've seen so far. As the people of God, we've been called to care for the poor. I don't want that to get overshadowed. We should leave this morning with a renewed awareness of our responsibility to those around us. But it's not just about caring for the poor. God cares about our hearts. He cares about our motivations. He tells us there are some who give to the poor, but they are hypocrites. There are some who give a lot, and God's not pleased with them because they do it to be seen. So the warning, don't be like them. There's a wrong way to give. And then he says there, there's a right way to give. We are to give the right way, verse 3. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So, on the one hand, there were those whose giving was loud, and Jesus says, don't be like them. Instead, instead of letting everybody know, he says, don't let anyone know. Not even yourself. It's interesting, right? Hide it even from yourself. Be so quiet in your giving that even you don't notice your giving. It's an extreme example, but the point is clear. We aren't to give in order to be seen. And again, I think this, this pushes us to, to consider how subtle sin is. Sin is always lurking in the corners of our hearts. Maybe you've heard this passage before, right? And, we, and when you're generous to others, you, you have this passage in your mind. I don't want to be like them. And so maybe you've developed a, a habit over the years of being very careful in your giving so it's not to be seen as seeking the praise of men. So you're careful not to draw attention to yourself. But then, I wonder if this happened, that you, that you lay in bed at night and think, man, I am so generous. I'm so, I'm so kind. Or maybe it comes across this way. I gave. They didn't even know who gave, but they didn't even seem to care. I watched them open that card, and I saw the money that I had put in there. They didn't know I did it, but it's in there, and that fell out. And they didn't even seem thankful. What is that? It's our heart saying, I deserve credit. I deserve praise. Sin can be so subtle, can it? Listen again to what Jesus says. 
when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, if you're left-handed, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. But in the scriptures, the right hand is the dominant hand. So take that what you want. The right hand is the hand that does the work. If you were to give a gift, the right hand is the one doing the giving. Jesus says, be so careful that your left hand doesn't know what the working hand is doing. Why? So that your giving can be in secret, secret even from yourself. In the case of the hypocrites, they wanted everyone to see, but Jesus says, no, do it secret. So that your giving may be in secret. The aim is not that everyone will see, but that no one will see. Here's the question. Can we always give in secret? Probably not. Can we always be anonymous? Probably not. Is Jesus telling us that if anyone finds out about our giving, we are in the category of hypocrite? Probably not. Our giving will not always be 100% secretive. But we can always be careful about the motivation of our heart. What's your aim? What's your goal? Who are you trying to please? I've seen folks who have gone to such an extent that their giving would be secret that it was loud, right? Tiptoeing way out of the way to be secret. So the question is, where, where's our heart, right? It's not really a question necessarily about who sees the gift, but who you want to see the gift. If our motive is to be seen, then according to Jesus, we're like the hypocrites. It is a matter of the heart, and if we go back to where we started, we recognize that at times people will see. And we should always hope that when our righteousness is seen, they'll give glory to our Father who's in heaven. It's about who gets the praise and who we want to get the praise. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. To be seen or to not be seen. The real question is, what, where's your heart? What's your motivation? Are you giving from a pure heart? And that was the title I put on the message, and maybe you could take that phrase and, and use it to help you. Pure-hearted giving. That's, that's the aim. What we see is that when we give out of a pure heart, there is a reward. It says... Your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you're giving made in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, before we get to the reward part, let's just talk about that idea of the father who sees in secret. This is something that we probably don't value as much as we should. Here, here's the temptation. We could think of Jesus as... Our, God, he, he sees everything, and we can think, oh, right? He sees everything, which means he, he knows my sin. He, he knows my heart, and we could think overall negatively about the fact that God sees all. And what I want to encourage us this morning is to think positively about the presence of God, that we have a God who knows all and sees all, and that should be more of a comfort 
than anything else. He's always with us. He always sees us. He never misunderstands. He knows our motives. Sometimes we may do things and others misunderstand our motives. God never misunderstands. If you want to think more about this this week, about the presence of God, you could read Psalm 139. An incredible psalm of David, a reminder that we are never outside of God's view. He's behind us and before us. Everywhere we go, he's there ahead of us. There's nowhere that you go, nowhere that you've been that he's not. It should be an incredibly comforting reality. And in the context of Matthew 6, it means that he sees it. He, he sees your good works. Even if no one else sees it, he sees it. And not only does he see it, but Jesus says he'll reward you for it. So the question, what's the reward? And at the minimum, it means that he's pleased and we receive his praise, which is always better than the praise of men. But there are passages that seem to push this further. That tell us that God blesses those who are generous, that God gives to those who give and blesses those who bless. One example of many, Luke 6, 38 Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. We have lots of passages like this saying that as we give, God gives to us. So it may be that at times the reward is tangible. But there are also passages that push us to see the reward that God gives to those who are generous are things like joy and contentment and satisfaction. I mentioned earlier 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and we get a lot of that in this passage. So this is where Paul's um, collecting an offering for the poor, and he's encouraging the Corinthians to be, to be faithful in their giving. And I just want to read a portion of this, and I want you to hear it through this context. What does God, how does God reward those who give? And Paul says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And he says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in good works. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So one thing we see here is he, he gives us grace and he equips us for good works. He goes on. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. We've been talking a lot about growing in righteousness. As we're, as we're generous, generous he, he increases that. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Your giving brings praise to God. 
for the ministry of this service is not supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. I won't take time this morning to parse all that out, but spend some time with it this week and recognize this. God has promised to be gracious to us as we are faithful. But it's different than what the prosperity teachers would have us to hear. They say, sow a seed. Give a little money and God will give you a lot of money. If you're generous, God will make you prosperous. And he can. Or he may grow your contentment. Increase your gratitude for what you have so that even if you have less than you had before, you're fully satisfied in what he has given you. It's a long way of saying God rewards his people. And it's always better to receive the reward of God than the reward of men. We should long to be people who please God. As we come to this passage, there are those who would have us believe that it's a formula to figure out how to get the greatest return on investment. But that misses the point. The point is that there is a difference between true righteousness and hypocritical righteousness. And it's possible for everyone to look at us and assume that we are right before God when in fact we are far from Him. So let me just remind you of the warning once again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Do you want to increase in righteousness, gratitude, contentment, and joy? Live for the praise of God and not for the praise of men. There's a phrase I picked up years ago from either a professor or pastor and I don't know who to thank, but it stuck with me. The, the, the saying is, there's only two options on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. I find that helpful. Who are we living for? When we give, who are we aiming to please, God or self? To be seen or not to be seen, well, our aim should be that God sees. And our hope should be that he gets the glory. So my prayer for us is that we would be generous, that we would be sacrificial, that we would be joyful in our giving, not for the praise of men, but for the sake of the glory of God. May God receive the glory as we follow his commands in the way that he has called us to. Let's pray together.